Good evening, everyone. My name is Toby Mattison. I'm the Sir Adam Roberts Senior Research Fellow in the International Relations of the Middle East, and I would like to welcome you to the Middle East Center for this evening's lecture on Saudi Arabia under Mohammed bin Salman. We are very happy to have one of the world's leading experts on Saudi Arabia here tonight to deliver this lecture. Gregory Gauss is the head of department in international affairs at the Bush School at A&M University in Texas and also holds the John H. Lindsay 44 chair in political science. He was previously a professor in political science at the University of Vermont and has also had a number of resident fellowships in the Gulf, particularly in Doha and in Saudi Arabia. Professor Gore's list of publications is so long that it took me almost 10 pages to print it all out. He has a very well-developed website where you can see the, the breadth of his publications. For my particular uh, interest, and, and I suppose for today's lectures, his three books on the Gulf region and on the Arabian Peninsula are the most pertinent. The first book that he published is entitled Saudi-Yemeni Relations, uh, Domestic Structures and Foreign Influence. Today he spoke to my students and told us the story of how this book actually came about, which I will not repeat here because it's kind of self-denigrating uh, account of, of how it came about. But it is the perhaps you know, best study of, of Saudi-Yemeni relations until today, and, and given that the two countries are you know, obviously still in close relations and problematic relations, which we'll hear about today, this book is still important. Then he published uh, another book, on a comparative politics book on the oil monarchies, and then last but not least, a book uh, entitled The International Relations of the Persian Gulf, which is a main uh, kind of textbook on the IR of the Middle East and particularly the Gulf region. He's established himself as, I suppose, kind of one of the leading authors on the IR of the Middle East, particularly focusing on Saudi-Iranian relations, also on the relations between Iraq, Iran, and Saudi Arabia in the wider region. And I will not go into all of his other publications, but it's really a very, very extensive list of both policy papers, uh, academic journal entries, and op-eds on, on all kinds of topics, not least on the topic of Saudi Arabia under Mohammed bin Salman, on which he will speak to us now. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Gregory Gore. Thank you, sir. So it's a, a great pleasure to be back at Oxford. This is my first time in the new building in Investcore Hall, and it's extremely impressive, and I'm uh, honored to have been invited. It was 10 years ago that I last visited. I remember it distinctly because Dr. Willis tutored me on British constituencies because it was the very day, it was election day in 2010 when David Cameron won, the Conservative Party won and formed the new government. Has anything happened since then? Since I've been away? Uh, I was going to tell a joke about the director of the Middle East Center, but he's not here. So, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm gonna, I wanted to tell it to his face, but he's a very busy man. Your, your director, Professor Rogan, and I were graduate students together back when the Egyptians were building the pyramids. And him coming over here gave me my entree to visit Oxford. But it's been a long time. And I thought it was so nice to get the invitation from Eugene to come over. I, I actually truthfully invited myself. I told him, I'm going to be in London. Why don't you put me up for a while and I'll give you a talk? 
And so he put me up over in the Cotswold Lodge, which is marvelous and great. I got in Saturday night and woke up Sunday morning and went out for a walk. And right across the street from the Cotswold Lodge is the Oxford Institute of Population Aging. And I just, you know, I wanted to say thank you, Eugene, for that reminder. And I really wish he were here so I could look right at him when I said it. So how much has changed in Saudi Arabia in the last five years? That, I think, is something that there was quite a bit of exaggeration about at the outset of King Salman's reign when he gave over quite a bit of power to his son, Mohammed bin Salman, in the policy areas of economic policy. And then, of course, in 2017, when he became crown prince, turfing out Prince Mohammed bin Nayef, he basically had all the portfolios at that point. And there was a tendency, particularly in the United States, to think of him either in individual terms or in generational terms, which is to say uh, this person represents a whole new generation of leadership in Saudi Arabia bringing new ideas, or uh, individually about him, whether, whether you liked him or didn't like him. And, and of course, the pendulum swang uh, in, in the United States from his first visit where he was kind of lionized and, and given excellent press coverage and given the, the greatest honor America can convey, uh, an interview on 60 Minutes. Uh, yeah, I think it is the greatest honor America can convey. Uh, then, of course, after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and the intensification of the crisis and tragedy in Yemen, the pendulum swung and, and he became, you know, not lionized, but, but rather criticized in the United States. But always very individual. It's because of this guy that either these good things have happened or these bad things have happened. And while I don't want to diminish the character and inclinations of the crown prince as important factors in what's going on, because he does have an enormous amount of power, I think it's less convincing as the central explanatory factor here than changes in the circumstances and the organization of decision-making in the ruling family. And so by changes in the, in the organization of the ruling family, I, I mean the family demographics, there was going to be a generational change. There had to be a generational change because everyone of the old generation, the generation of the, of the sons of, of Abdulaziz, the founder of the modern kingdom, were dying. Right? It was inevitable that there was going to be generational change. How it came about and how it was organized, I think, is interesting, and I'll get back to that when I talk about changes. But without that, right, without that, that, the demographics of leadership in the al Saud family, none of this is explainable. And two particular circumstances that occurred. One, of course, was the Arab Spring, the regional chaos, the rise of Iranian power in the region. Much of what we attribute to MBS in terms of Saudi foreign policy actually began before. Right? Involvement in Syria, the focus, the intense focus on Iran, and desire to contain and, if possible, roll back Iran. The crackdown on the small bit of political freedom, very, I mean, we're talking relative terms, a small bit of political freedom that Saudi intellectuals and activists were able to enjoy in the post-9-11 period. We tend to attribute to MBS, especially in the United States, the, the cracking down on dissent in Saudi Arabia. But in fact, and while he has, that predated his rise to power. That basically was a product of the, of the Arab uprisings of 2011. So much of what we see in MBS, both in domestic and foreign policy, uh, predates his rise. And the other important circumstance to understand 
is that he came to power, his father came to power in the midst of a dramatic decrease in oil prices. Right? We have to recall that from the early mid 2000s, maybe 2003, 2004, until around 2015, you had an enormous run up in oil prices, right? From down around 20 to $30 a barrel to consistently over $100 a barrel. And the fiscal situation of Saudi Arabia was extremely comfortable, extremely comfortable for that decade or so. There was a dramatic decrease in oil prices during the world financial crisis, but almost immediately shot back up to over $100 a barrel. And when oil is over $100 a barrel, no one has to make tough decisions in Saudi Arabia. But when King Salman came to power and deputized the crown prince to be the kind of motor of economic policy, oil prices uh, had a historic collapse. Down around $30 a barrel for a while in 2015-16, creeping back up towards $70 a barrel last year in 2019, but now back down to around 50 And I don't think that we can understand the economic policies that MBS has tried to implement and has to some extent implemented without understanding that context of the collapse of oil prices in 2015. If you're going to try to impose pain, right, economic pain on people in Saudi Arabia, you can't do it if oil is $100 a barrel. You really can't do it if oil is $70 a barrel. At $30 a barrel, you can do it. So those circumstances kind of both in family demographics, regional politics, and the oil market help set the stage for the kinds of things that Mohammed bin Salman, granted a very ambitious individual, wanted to do. So what I want to do is talk about four areas of change where Mohammed bin Salman has implemented policies to try to change the direction of Saudi Arabia. And I'm going to take them in order of most problematic to most dramatic, right? The area where it's most problematic for him to realize change and implement his declared policies to the place where I would argue he has been most successful in implementing change and it's had the most long-term effect on Saudi politics and society. So the most problematic is economics. It was a good Antonian, Stefan Hertog, Right, who got his degree here, right? At DPhil, he got his DPhil at St. Anthony's, who, who I think is probably the best interpreter of Saudi political economy that we have around here, who's pointed out that, that it is absolutely unprecedented in history to take an economy as dependent on oil and the export of oil as Saudi Arabia is and convert it into a productive economy that is not dependent on the export of oil. Yet that was the goal of Mohammed bin Salman when he declared his Vision 2030 economic plan in 2016. It was no less than the conversion of Saudi Arabia from an economy that basically depends upon the export of a primary commodity and whose private sector labor force is overwhelmingly foreign to an economy in which non-oil sectors will become more productive. The private sector will take an even larger role in the national economy and nationals will staff that private sector. Now, if you have the patience to read through the hundreds of pages of Vision 2030 and its accompanying documents, all prepared at great expense by uh, McKinsey, (laughs) you might get lost in the details. But I think it's important to keep these kind of top-line goals in mind as we consider what's happened to it. Now, the Vision 2030 goals were not new with one exception. 
right? Almost every one of the Vision 2030 goals, right, to increase Saudi participation in the private sector labor force, to try to bring the cost of utilities, water, electricity, gasoline, petrol, up, at least, if not to world price levels, at least toward world price levels to discourage irrational and, and excessive use. All of these goals, create a more productive non-oil basic, all of these goals were part of almost every Saudi planning document that was issued from 1975 on. So the goals were not new, except for the one goal of the partial privatization of the jewel in the crown, the most important economic driver of Saudi Arabia, the National Oil Company, which, which has now been renamed the Saudi Oil Company, but we all call Aramco, right? Saudi Aramco, if, if you prefer. So the goals were not new. And I do think that, that it's important that we credit Mohammed bin Salman for having the political courage to take old goals and for the first time since the 1970s have the political will to implement at least some of them. And so he did introduce the first, at least since the, the, the oil revolution in the 70s, the first real mass-based tax in Saudi Arabia with the VAT. You know, it's 5%. It's not like here in, in Europe. Oh, no, I can't say Europe anymore. Here in Britain. Uh, I promise that's a last Brexit joke. I'm not going to do any more of those. It's only 5%, the VAT. You know, it's not 18% or 21%. But it is the first real consumer-based tax in modern Saudi history. He implemented that. He did cut subsidies. Price of electricity, price of water, price of petrol, all went up, not to world prices, but significantly more than they were before. He implemented something that had been on recommendation from the IMF for decades, right, which was a direct cash transfer to poorer Saudis, implemented through electronic banking, right, directly into your account, the the, the citizen account. If you qualified based on your income level, you got direct monthly, you get direct monthly payments into your bank account in order to try to, for poorer Saudis, lessen the impact of the increases in these prices. They didn't completely cover, but it was something that, again, the IMF and all the outside experts have said, you know, get your prices up to world level and then subsidize directly to those who, who can't afford to pay. You know, why, why should you subsidize millionaires and billionaires, as Senator Sanders would say? Why should you subsidize millionaires and billionaires by letting them buy water, uh, uh, you know, incredibly cheaply, letting them buy electricity incredibly cheaply? Basically, you know, they leave the house for three months in Riyadh to go to Europe for the summer and they just leave the air conditioning on, right? Mm-hmm. Why not get electricity prices up and then subsidize those lower middle class and and lower income Saudis directly? And he did that. Again, something that had been on recommendation for decades, and he had the political will to implement it. For decades, there have been recommendations to increase the price of foreign labor. He did it. Not only increasing the price of work visas, but also, as we'll discuss later, changing the law about women driving, and thus uh, eliminating the need for uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of drivers in Saudi Arabia. These steps have drastically reduced the foreign labor force. In fact, uh, the official statistics are over a million people have left Saudi Arabia. Over a million foreign workers have left Saudi Arabia in the last couple of years. And in a country of 30 million people, 32 million people, that's not inconsiderable. 
In fact, it's helped contribute to uh, the kind of the economic lassitude of the last couple of years. So he's done a number of things, which, again, all the outsiders, all the economic experts, all the Western institutions like the IMF and the World Bank have recommended to Saudi Arabia for decades. But what he hasn't been able to crack and what Vision 2030 hasn't been able to crack yet is the core problem of the oil-based economy in Saudi Arabia. And that core problem revolves around labor. The Saudi private sector was built on a business model of cheap foreign labor. The Saudi private sector was a job-creating machine during the 2000s and early 2010s. Probably created over a million new jobs in Saudi Arabia. Right, during this time of the booming oil economy, right, the second great oil boom. The problem was about 90% of those jobs went to foreign workers. You have a very influential business class in Saudi Arabia that has built its business model on cheap foreign labor, and now the government says, get rid of that foreign labor, hire Saudis. Well, it hasn't been able to find the appropriate policy instruments to, to bring that change about partially because it faces a domestic labor force that vastly prefers to wait a couple of years for a state job than to take a private sector job. And so this core nut of the problem of the Saudi political economy is something that, while Vision 2030 has attempted to deal with, has not been able to do so in any significant way. Yes, losing foreign laborers, but those foreign laborers are not being replaced in the private sector by Saudis. You have nice anecdotal stories about, you know, oh, I saw a Saudi checking out groceries at the Tamimi grocery. Okay, yeah, one, you know. Those of us who, who check into hotels in, in Riyadh and Jidda, oh, a Saudi checked me into my hotel. Right? So that's all good, but, I mean, this is all anecdotal, one-offs. Right? The data indicates that we're not seeing this large-scale movement of Saudis into the private sector economy. So the combination of uh, increasing the subsidies, the departure of so many foreign workers, and the downturn in oil prices has led to you know, some amount of economic downturn in Saudi Arabia, which the government attempted to deal with through expansionary budgets in 2017, 2018, 2019, particularly 18, 19, and now in 2020. You could do that at $70 a barrel. In fact, at $70 a barrel, the Saudis kind of lessened some of the more harsh elements of Vision 2030, right? There was a plan to decrease, in effect, decrease state salaries, state sector salaries. And that was rolled back when oil prices got up to $70 a barrel. So uh, this basic change, fundamental change from an a oil-dependent economy to a productive economy is proving difficult to achieve. Now, one could say early days, and that is absolutely true. Right? But the signs are not all positive, and some of them are negative. Right? One could also look in kind of the realm of frustrated plans, the Aramco privatization. Right? Now, remember, this was never an attempt to uh, completely privatize Saudi Aramco, 5%. But the Crown Prince was hoping that at a valuation of $2 trillion, Right? It would generate $50 billion. I'm not a mathematician. Anybody good at math here? Check my numbers. Sorry. $50 billion, I think. A lot of money. Uh, right? No, at 5%? Yeah, $2 trillion, it should generate $100 billion. Right? But the purpose of this was to bring new capital into 
the Gulf into Saudi Arabia. It was, it was meant to be sold to foreign investors. There was going to be a slice that would be sold domestically, but it was really meant to be sold to foreign investors to bring in outside income, to increase the, the total store of capital in Saudi Arabia, and that did not happen. The government was not able to attract significant foreign investment into the Aramco sale. Its effort to sell the concept of buying shares in Saudi Aramco came a cropper. The foreign road shows where your investment bankers take your product out to various capital markets to try to interest the institutional investors to buy in, that was canceled. And so what happened is the Aramco privatization that occurred was limited to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf itself. It was, in effect, taking private sector money, right? some of it loaned at relatively easy terms to Saudi citizens, who then bought the shares. And they were promised a 5% rate of return on their investment over, a, I think, the first three years, maybe the first four years. I forget. So in essence, it wasn't a stock. It was a bond. In, at least for, for the early years for those who hold it. So while the, the Aramco privatization has increased the public investment fund, which is the Crown Prince's vehicle for uh, investment both abroad and at home to try to change the Saudi economy, it's not new money coming in. It's the reshuffling of, of money that's already in the system, taking it out of private hands, putting it into government hands, which runs exactly the opposite of the overall goal of increasing the role of the private sector in the Saudi economy. Now, the impatience of the crown prince is not a help here. And I refer specifically to uh, the Ritz-Carlton roundup of November 2017, where he, in effect, made the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Riyadh the the most uh, luxurious jail in the world, in which he imprisoned, estimates differ, but probably over 300 of the economic elite of Saudi Arabia, who he accused of corruption. Some people in, in the West interpreted this as a, a, you know, generated more by his desire to consolidate his political control. I didn't see it as that. He couldn't have done this unless his political control was consolidated. And the people who were put in the Ritz were, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, not important political actors. But they were the economic elite of the country. And he basically picked them up by their ankles and shook money out of them. Although none of, this, none of the settlements were public, in order to get out of the writs, you had to, in essence, confess your sins of corruption and agree to return some amount of your ill-gotten gain, quote-unquote, to the state. Now, was this gain ill-gotten? Well, one can argue that uh, almost everyone who was in the writs were playing by the rules as they understood them in Saudi Arabia that had been in effect for decades. Was it all legal? Uh, Probably not if you read the statutes carefully, but it was certainly the common law of how business was to be transacted. Much like the Aramco privatization, the Ritz-Carlton Roundup was a transfer of money from the private sector to the public sector. Again, against this overall goal of Vision 2030 of increasing the role of the private sector and building a more dynamic private sector. It's very difficult to get investors to invest in in anything, whether it's domestic capital or foreign capital, if you have a very, very dramatic demonstration that there is no security for their investments. 
And that, I think, is probably the, the most damaging long-term consequence of the Crown Prince's efforts to recover what he considered to be stolen money from the Saudi private sector. So as these transfers are occurring, either through the Aramco privatization or through the uh, appropriation of private funds from the Ritz-Carlton, where's this money going? Well, it's going to a new, not a new, but a revamped vehicle called the Public Investment Fund in Saudi Arabia, which had been a relatively minor element in the state financial system, but that the crown prince has adopted as his sovereign wealth fund. Right? The sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia up until this time had basically been the Saudi Central Bank, which is the Saudi Arabian Monetary Agency. It managed the reserves of the kingdom, and of course those reserves were enormous during the, the run-up in oil prices in the 2000s. And it managed them extremely conservatively in very liquid investments, U.S. Treasury bonds, the bonds of other very reliable governments, and thus its rate of return relatively modest. That was very useful during the world financial crisis because the Sama didn't lose a lot of money then. But as the markets recovered, there was a feeling in the crown prince in his circle that Saudi Arabia was leaving money on the table and had to be more aggressive in the management of its reserves, uh, looking to, say, Abu Dhabi, right, which managed its reserves in a much more aggressive, much more, shall we say, commercial fashion. And so the PIF was for the crown prince going to be his vehicle for getting a better rate of return on Saudi reserves, on the Saudi sovereign wealth. And this is, uh, the PIF is also playing an increasing role now in the domestic economy. In essence, it buys into successful companies, right, on the theory that we're giving you more private companies in Saudi Arabia. We're giving you more capital so you can expand, be more effective, expand your horizons. But what that does, of course, is, again, increase the state's role in the private sector, taking companies that had, in essence, been 100% private and giving the state a stake in them. The Crown Prince also has come up with some futuristic plans. Probably the best known is a brand new city that he plans to build in the northwest of the country, right, called Neom. It's Neo Mustakbal, right, the new future. And this was, you probably saw the news reports about it. You know, there was, uh, computers are going to run everything and robots are going to, to do the, the, the physical labor and all that kind of stuff. But one can argue, is this the way to build a thriving private sector? Right? Presumably, if this kind of investment were going to get a good rate of return, the private sector would be doing it anyway. And so one can see in, in the Crown Prince's development of the public investment fund as a new sovereign wealth fund, an effort that in its domestic manifestations runs against the stated goal of Vision 2030 of increasing the role of the private sector in the Saudi economy. So the bottom line on the economics, I think, is that while there are important changes here, and the crown prince has had political will to implement what I think almost any outside economic analyst would say are very sensible policies on subsidies and the like, it's not clear that many of his other policies are going to lead to the achievement of these overall goals of Vision 2030, particularly in terms of of changing the Saudi labor force from one that is enormously concentrated in the state sector to one that is majority concentrated in the private sector, 
and in terms of increasing the role of the private sector and decreasing the role of the state sector in the Saudi economy. So the early returns here are not promising. Foreign policy is number two. Remember, from the most problematic to the most dramatic. So in foreign policy, although there have been important changes that I'm going to talk about, I I would argue that there's been more continuity here than change. As I argued, the anti-Iranian, the focus on Iran as the major regional threat predates MBS's coming to power, predates the reign of King Salman. The Saudi interventions in Bahrain and Egypt to try to reverse the Muslim Brotherhood victory, the successfully reversed the Muslim Brotherhood victory in the presidential elections. The Saudi interventions in Syria, the criminalization of the Muslim Brotherhood, all this predates 2015. So this fear of the regional trends in the post-Arab uprisings environment, which Mohammed bin Salman has continued, predates him. Continuity, not change in Saudi foreign policy. And of course, the relationship with the United States, which has always been central in Saudi Arabian foreign policy, really hasn't changed. In fact, the U.S. relationship has been so central for the crown prince, as I would argue, is to be counterproductive, both for the United States and for Saudi Arabia. We see President Trump in 2017 directly playing into the politics of the ruling family by embracing in an extremely public way Mohammed bin Salman, and then just a short time, six weeks, I think, after President Trump's visit to Riyadh, his first visit outside of the United States as president to Riyadh, Traditionally, American presidents visit either Canada or Mexico on their first foreign visit. You might understand why those were not options for President Trump. <laughs> he directly played into the politics of the ruling family. Right? Just six weeks or so after his visit to Riyadh is when uh, the crown prince moved to turf out the then crown prince, Mohammed bin Nayef, who was for 15 years America's favorite Saudi. Right? For 15 years, Mohammed bin Nayef all right, as the deputy to his father, Prince Nayef, as, as Minister of the Interior, and then as Minister himself, was America's favorite Saudi in the George W. Bush administration and in the Barack Obama administration. And I should just mention parenthetically that I teach at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. We are named after the first President Bush, George H.W. Bush. Just want to make that clear. Come and visit uh, President George H.W. Bush's presidential library on our campus. I'll give you a tour. So, President Trump directly intervening in a way that American presidents haven't done so publicly, right? at least since the Saud Faisal crisis of the late 50s and early 60s, and I would argue not, even then, not as publicly as President Trump did. In fact, the headline in the New York Times, not on the front page, but in the internal article, when Mohammed bin Salman became crown prince was Trump gets his man. I would argue that that's not the best place for uh, an American president to be seen as directly intervening in the politics of the family, nor is it the best thing for the object of his affections to be seen so directly as America's man. And likewise, in the United States, Saudi Arabia is increasingly seen as a partisan actor in American politics. For decades, American support for Saudi Arabia had been a bipartisan policy. Now, an elite-level policy, there was no kind of public-level support for Saudi Arabia. And in fact, it's difficult to find a country less popular than Saudi Arabia in Congress. Democrats don't like it because it, 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 human rights and illiberality, 
The Republicans don't like it because there's no churches, right? And they're, they're, they're nobody, nobody, nobody likes them, okay? But there was an elite-level consensus that the relationship with Saudi Arabia was important. But increasingly, Democrats see Saudi Arabia under the crown prince as a partisan actor in American politics. They remember the insults to President Obama. They see the closeness of the relationship with President Trump and his family. And I I think that particularly if we see Democratic candidates like Senator Warren or Senator Sanders get the nomination and then become president, I think there could be a significant change from the American side in how this relationship is viewed. But that's the continuity. What about the changes? The continuity of a strong U.S.-Saudi relationship is, you know, MBS didn't invent that. He's just carrying on the policies of the past. But I do think that we can see in this context of continuity, we can see MBS as tactically different than his predecessors. He's more adventurous, he's more aggressive, he's more reckless. In Yemen, I think any Saudi leader faced with the prospect of an Iranian ally moving from Sana'a down to Aden and basically taking over the country, any Saudi leader would have acted to prevent that. Now, would they have acted with direct conventional military attacks as the Saudi Emirati coalition did? That's where I think MBS might be new. Not that he cares about sustaining Yemen as as Saudi Arabia's backyard and not allowing any other power to have a foothold in Yemen. That's been consistent Saudi policy, not always achieved, but it's been consistent Saudi policy for decades. I mean, dating back to King Faisal, King Saud, but would, would a, another Saudi leader have used direct conventional military forces? That I don't know. I, I think the Qatar boycott, the Hariri kidnapping, and, and the killing of Jamal Khashoggi uh, would not have been done in a previous Saudi administration. So here we can talk about generational change as a factor. And, and this is what I mean by this. MBS's uncles who have ruled Saudi Arabia right, since the early 1950s up until now, lived through a lot of challenges. They lived through Nasserist pan-Arabism. They lived through the Cold War. They lived through the Iranian Revolution and the Iran-Iraq War. They lived through the Gulf War of 1990-91, when Mohammed bin Salman was not yet out of short pants. He didn't live these experiences where Saudi leaders realized the limits of their power and influence. I think that he thought that Saudi Arabia was a superpower. It was like Russia and China. If the Russians and the Chinese can kill dissidents abroad, why can't we? If the Iranians can kill dissidents abroad, which they do, why can't we? And I don't think that he had a a fine enough appreciation for the limits of Saudi power something that his uncles did. Now, is he learning those limits? Uh, He's had a couple of experiences that have taken him to school. Uh, The the failure of of the Yemen intervention is something that is widely acknowledged in Saudi Arabia right now. And the question is, what's the exit ramp? How can we get out of Yemen while preserving at least some of our interests? I think one of the problems the Saudis will tell you is that they don't have a negotiating partner on the other side. To some extent, if you, know, if you know the Saudis want to leave, why should the Houthis give them a deal? 
And certainly, why should the Iranians press the Houthis to give the Saudis a deal? But I think even more central is a more recent event, and that was the Abqaiq attacks. The attacks this past September by Iran on the most central oil facility in the world, right? The processing plant in Abqaiq processes about half of daily Saudi oil production, which is 5% of the world's oil production. The fineness, the preciseness of the, of the Iranian attack on the facility, right? showing that it could really hit it but not really destroying it. And then the lack of an American response was, I think, uh, profoundly dislocating to the Saudi elite. For decades, the United States said that the reason it is in the Persian Gulf is to protect the free flow of oil. This was the most serious attack on the free flow of oil since Saddam Hussein set fire to the Kuwaiti oil fields in 1991, and in fact, took more oil off the world market. And yet the United States, in effect, did nothing. In fact, President Trump tweeted, uh, that's not our oil, let the Japanese and the Chinese who buy that oil take care of this issue. I mean, for an American president to say that after... Every one of his predecessors had, in one way or another, signed on to this idea that the United States cares about this part of the world because we care about the free flow of oil, was, uh, to Saudi interlocutors that I met with uh, last month, profoundly disturbing. And, you know, as our Marxist friends would say, it's no accident that, shortly after that, the Saudis began outreach through third parties in Iraq and Pakistan to try to open up new channels of communication with the Iranian government. Okay, third, from the problematic to the dramatic. Third is social change, and it has been dramatic. A very astute observer of Saudi life, who I've known for decades, told me a couple of weeks ago, and he's no fan of the crown prince, he said, there's a social revolution going on in this country. And I wouldn't underestimate the importance of the, the, of the most central decision that was made as part of that social revolution, which is allowing women to drive. Again, for decades, people have, uh, have, uh, I've been going to Saudi Arabia, people have told me, look, our society is ready for this. It's our government doesn't have the will because they're afraid of alienating or angering a very small chunk of our population. And Mohammed bin Salman, you know, took the sword, cut the Gordian knot, just said, women are going to drive. They are, without incident. And uh, I can assure you that if not now, pretty soon, the wives and daughters of long-bearded clerics in Saudi Arabia will be driving just as much as the wives and daughters of quote-unquote liberal technocrats because it just makes your life that much easier. Although, having never driven in Riyadh, but being driven in Riyadh, I wouldn't want to get behind the wheel there. (laughs) So I, I wouldn't underestimate the role of this change in the change in social life and the change in, in the labor force. I mean, women can now get to work. It can make economic sense for a woman to take a job, whereas before she had to have a driver to get her to work and back. The reduction in the social policing role of the religious establishment has been striking. You read about you know, the raves and the concerts and that kind of thing, and, and yeah, they're disgusting. To some extent, the Saudis are importing the worst of Western popular culture, the World Wrestling Federation and you know, professional wrestling and, and Mariah Carey and you know, that kind of thing. But there's all sorts of changes in social life. I went to a pop-up restaurant scene in North Riyadh in January when I was there. Men and women completely mixing. 
very relaxed social atmosphere, not a single member of the, of the Mutawa, the religious police in evidence. And this is opening up new economic areas for Saudis, domestic tourism, entertainment and media. Where Saudis, there's some very clever Saudis are really good on YouTube, have good YouTube channels, right? can sell ads. It's an outlet for creative Saudis. And the lack of, the, of any evident pushback to this policy gives some support to the argument made by MBS and his supporters that Saudi society has been ready for these changes for some time, that there is a generational change at the level of desiring greater social freedom. Now, this social liberalism should not be confused with political li- liberalism. Critics of MBS, both on the more liberal side, on the more conservative religious side, and everywhere in between are in jail. When I ask people, where's the pushback to these social changes? The answer is always the same. The pushback is in jail. MBS is an equal opportunity authoritarian. He arrests the advocates for women, women driving when he implements their policy goals. He arrests elements of the, of the fringe of the religious establishment who criticize him from a, an Islamist point of view. He jails tribal sheikhs who have questions about these social, this social liberalization. They all end up in jail. But I would argue that as unfortunate as that is, it's not unusual. Social reformers usually put their opponents in jail if they actually want to change their societies because changing their societies alienates important strata of those societies. So the bottom line here is that I think there's a real social revolution occurring in the country, particularly on gender issues. Finally, and this is, I think, the most important and lasting change, is politics and the ruling family itself. There's been a revolutionary change in the structure of power within the family. Ever since the Saud Faisal crisis of the 1950s and early 1960s, Power has been shared among, if you will, a committee of senior princes and shared horizontally with power passing not from father to son, but from brother to half-brother to half-brother to brother. That's gone on since the 1950s, so we're talking 70 years of horizontal transfers of power. I call the people who held power during this period the party of Faisal. King Faisal rallied the family to oppose his half-brother, King Saud, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, to some extent over policy differences, and that's what usually gets emphasized in the Western writing about this, but also because there was an enormous suspicion that King Saud wanted to make his son his crown prince. Faisal organized almost the entire rest of the family into a block to oppose Saud on the basis that power would not be transferred within one line of the al-Saud, but would be shared horizontally. This created a system in which sometimes the king was first among equals, sometimes the king stood back, right? but decisions were made by, important decisions were made by committees. This had all the vices of committees. It was slow, it was ponderous. Right? This kind of decision-making process didn't allow you to take dramatic steps, didn't allow you to grab opportunities. But it also had the virtue of committees. It avoided stupid decisions. It was steady in times of crisis. And the party of Faisal basically ruled Saudi Arabia, from 1962 until 2015. And King Salman was one of the members of the party of Faisal, long-serving governor of Riyadh, the most important province, and the largest province in terms of population in the country, before he became king. But then generational change came. 
as those princes of that second generation died out. So there was going to be a change in power, and most people, including me, thought that the sons of those princes would recreate the system that their fathers had. And there were some signs in the early 2010s that that was happening. As sons inherited their father's ministries, Khalid bin Sultan inheriting his father, Prince Sultan's Ministry of Defense, uh, the Ministry of the, of the Baladiya, Municipal Affairs, inherited, uh, I forget the names of who they were, but, but the son inherited the father's ministry. And it looked like this next generation, the third generation, was going to recreate the committee system that their fathers had. And I said, of course, it was pretty successful. Why not? And why would, I, why would any of these guys want to give up? Right? They've been waiting for years, for decades, to have their role, to take their role at the seat at the table where the really important decisions in the country were made. But that's not what happened. Right? King Salman made the generational change in appointing Mohammed bin Nayef as crown prince and his son, Mohammed bin Salman, as second deputy prime minister, and then made the even more dramatic change of turfing out Mohammed bin Nayef, making his own son the crown prince, and in essence, consolidating rule within one line of the Al Saud, right? something that had triggered a family revolt 70 years ago. Why didn't it trigger a family revolt now? One reason is that Mohammed bin Salman has been assiduously cultivating a new constituency within the ruling family. People from the fourth generation, people close to his own age, right? He's third generation. He's the son of Salman, who's the son of Abdulaziz, right? But he's a very late son. And so he is closer in age to people in the fourth generation. And it's from that fourth generation that he's picking people to serve as governors and deputy governors, right? As uh, military officers, as important officials, although not cabinet officials, in the government. So he is cultivating his own constituency against his generation, right, the third generation, with his age group. Also, we really haven't seen the consolidation of any kind of family block against him. And I asked Saudis whose opinions I respect about this why, because these guys have waited for power for decades and now they're cut out. And the basic answer is these guys are not their fathers. They never had to fight for anything in their lives. They're comfortable. And it's very clear that to fight Mohammed bin Salman for power would be a very dangerous prospect. He's already put some of the members of the ruling family in jail, including one of the sons of King Abdullah. And he shows absolutely no compunction, it seems to me, to put other members of his family in jail if they oppose him. The death of King Salman will be the next testing point in this strategy of consolidation of power in one line of the Al Saud. And we'll see what happens. So I've, I've taken up way too much of your time already. Let me just say in conclusion that I think that it's likely that the crown prince will be ruling Saudi Arabia for some time. Have foreign setbacks taught him a lesson? Will we see a return to the more cautious Saudi foreign policy of the past? I think that's likely, particularly if we see a change in administration in the United States that is much less supportive of the crown prince. And finally, and I think the most important question going forward, I return to the problematic from the dramatic. Can the economic model be changed to something that can be sustainable at $50 a barrel? And that, I think, is an open question. So thank you very much. Very happy to take your questions.